So this morning, I was getting ready to Lord's new album and having a bit of an existential crisis because last night I had a tarot reading done for the first time in my life. And it was very shocking for me how accurate it was because this is with a person who I had worked with before. Um, she's modeled with me before. But besides that, this was the first time we were really hanging out. Therefore, she didn't have much backstory on me. I primarily wanted to talk about the last two cards she drew because she looked at me like very concerned and that scared me. But she drew the Emperor card and the Sun reversed. And depending on like what type of reader you you have, right? Different people will interpret things differently. She asked me my relationship with my father because um, she told me like, oh, I sense that you had a bit of resentment earlier in your life, but the relationship has sort of mended and it's a lot better right now. And I'm like, yeah, it, it, it is a lot better. And then she went on to ask me what was the medical history on my dad's side maternally. And I was like, wow, you know what? I don't actually know too much about my grandmother on my dad's side because she passed away when she was like 37. So very young. I think my dad was like 13 at the time. And she asked me, oh, do you know exactly from what? But I didn't because this was during like the Vietnam War era and my my dad's side of the family is from South Vietnam. So they didn't have much like medical help. Like no, no one knew exactly why she passed. She passed in her sleep. But she told me that she was feeling and envisioning some sort of pain, primarily with my dad's like lung or heart area. And that was crazy to me because a few weeks ago, my dad actually did went to get an ultrasound to check on a heart murmur that his doctor had picked up on. And the results came back as he was fine. But when I told her that, she's like, oh, you should tell him to get a second opinion. Because she was envisioning this older woman who we believe is my grandmother. And she was sort of like holding my dad, like holding that specific area. And we didn't know exactly for sure it was like the heart or the lungs because, you know, like COVID's going on and I asked her for like a time frame. Like, when do you think this would come to fruition? And she's like, it could be soon. And so, of course, after that reading, it spooked me out a bit. And so I went home and all I could think about was, you know, oh, my goodness, like the death of my parents, which is something that I fear so greatly. I guess like when you heard that story, how did you present yourself when you got home like what was running through your mind and what was your reactions did you tell your dad or your parents or convey this in any way yeah so I did tell my mom I was like 100% sure I was not going to tell my dad immediately because he would 100% call like bullshit on it he does not believe in this but my mom on the other hand like the women the women in my family like my grandma especially very superstitious so like immediately after I told my mom this she's like I have to call grandma and then my grandma's like oh you have to bring your friend here but we did end up bringing this up to him during lunch he of course just brushed it off he's like i went to get it checked out i'm fine i'm fine so he still feels like he doesn't need to because he already had it checked out and then again like you have to take these readings with a grain of salt in a way i somehow feel like it resonated a lot with me that reading because yeah i'll give you like so much more detail afterwards i don't want to like dish out everything that she was telling me about my life, but it was super accurate, like scary accurate. Well, one of the things 
I guess I'm, I'm thinking is like, you went to this reading and you have this like desire to want to know things. And that kind of hits home to me, whether it's a reading or you wanting to know about the future or you wanting to understand your life better and you're in search of something. And do you feel like from the reading you can get control in some sort of way of your life or of your like life situation and control the narrative? And with that piece of information that you could manipulate outcomes or have a piece of information that could help you change your life? You know what? I think that is a huge part of it because I started to get into spirituality and like the cult stuff when I was at my lowest. So through tools like astrology, tarot, yes, it was like a self-reflective thing, but it did bring some sort of clarity that I was missing. In terms of like your question of like how how was I like when I returned home and what I was thinking about every few months this fear comes about again as in I just have these intrusive thoughts of oh my goodness my parents are going to die one day and it's not like I'm the type of person to think about the worst but I think many times in my life I have gone to the extremes in my mind in order to prepare myself for the worst possible outcome for instance, I I had a family member who was really sick a year or two ago, and at this point, we didn't know what was going to happen with this family member, but in my head, I was, I was already preparing to grieve them, even though they were still physically there, but it was sort of like my way of logistically going about it. It's like, okay, there's a chance this person might not be here anymore, so let me prepare for that before it actually happens in order to make sure I'm okay, you know? Right. To prevent yourself from that future pain and that grieving that you know is going to happen, you have this defense mechanism of pre-preparing and kind of setting up the grounds for grieving in the future, I guess, if you kind of spread it out. And you you almost have a phobia and a compulsion, it sounds like, because intrusive thoughts are compulsions, and compulsions and phobias are a defense mechanism from your brain. It's likely you've been through forms of pain in your life that hit you really hard and now your body has developed this coping mechanism of, okay, now if I identify the things that could cause me the deepest pain and it, and obviously, you know, the death of your parents, I think for anyone, for a lot of people would be something that would be the cause of deepest pain. So how can I hedge starting now and how can I hedge against that pain so that let me identify and track all the things that could be painful in the future and let me do everything that I can today. You know, maybe it is a tarot card reading or maybe it is someone wanting to, you know, telling you um, about the future. I don't know. <laughs> um, or whatever it is, maybe that's kind of, you know, that defense mechanism is to protect yourself, like you're saying, from that pain in the future. Oh my goodness. As you were speaking, I just, like, uncovered something, like, deep within me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, like, my fear of my parents dying, it does stem from something that could have actually happened, like, long ago when I was younger. Like, there was a scare. And I think, like, that's, I've held on to that for years now. Like, mm. that's something that will always terrify me. How young were you when that, you had that scare? 12. 
Okay, so your brain is still developing at that time. And it's like, when you're 12, you're doing whatever you can to just get by. And that's when I think our defense mechanisms, we start to develop them at that age. I mean, do you feel like you also do the same thing, like intellectualize any situation to better prepare yourself? Yeah, I think that I have um, a lot of different um, defense mechanisms and ways that I've kind of tried to like deal with like, Um, sudden stress in my life and I think the one that really worked for me I think different people have different ones like whether it's you know addictions or um, denial I think a lot of our parents have denial as a big one for me it's been intellectualization and for me um, funny story about that actually is like when I you know when I was in therapy my therapist one of the things that she told me from the very beginning was she asked me to kind of outline my childhood and my life and the things that have happened to me because when we dig deep down to the roots, we can dissect and create solutions and better coping strategies. And I would talk about really deeply painful things. And she mentioned that I would have no emotion on my face. And as I would be talking about these things, it was just like I was reciting out of like an encyclopedia or a textbook. And I would be telling her the scientific and, you know, psychological reasoning for X, Y, and Z, you know, perhaps um, this happened with my father because his childhood was X, Y, and Z and just intellectualizing the whole situation. And she told me, you know, I appreciate, you know, you outlining all of this to me in such a way and I appreciate you keeping it together, but you don't show any emotion. You can, you can let the tears flow when you're talking about these things. And I think that was my first time realizing that I intellectualize and it's my biggest defense mechanism because by intellectualizing and finding the reasoning behind situations and immediately getting down to the solutions, it kind of keeps me from feeling. So now my feelings are completely disassociated from the delivery and the thoughts and um, the information behind what I'm relaying. And I, I definitely do that in every situation. When friends tell me things, I immediately jump to, okay, maybe, you know, A plus B equals C. And I kind of try to put things together in that way. And that intellectualization also translates into control, I think, because it really is about control. It makes me feel like I have control over that situation. And I kind of do that all the time, but it protected me from feeling. And it's really hard now to tap into the feeling because I intellectualize. Mm. What do you feel is the cause of that? Do you think you attributed that to your parents, for instance? Um, because I know my my mom is also one to intellectualize everything. For example, when my grandpa had passed away and I went into the room to talk to her about it, she immediately got into planning mode. She's like, oh, I have to plan this for the funeral and that. Instead of really letting it soak in and grieve, um, yeah, like my parents were never super emotional growing up. So I think that's primarily where I got it from. Yeah, definitely. I know that, you know, science says that these protective strategies are used by children of, you know, abusive and neglectful parents. And I know that no parent is perfect and that all of our parents, you know, make mistakes and all of us have different coping strategies in life and different issues. But I definitely think that I grew up in a household where my parents were not very emotional, nor did they have any, as you know, they didn't have any way of coping with their emotions, any healthy ways. So I think I, being, you know, the oldest child um, and the first child, 
I always had to kind of take care of not only myself, but also the household. So there was no time for me to grieve or have emotions about anything. Even when I was a kid, if I felt sad, there was no time to cry or feel sad. It was like, okay, I need to get this done. I need to do this. I have this responsibility. This needs to be taken care of. I know my parents are not going to be able to process my emotions, so I just need to internalize it and 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 deal with it. And um, I guess, you know, intellectualizing for me... Um, was the quickest way to disassociate um, from the emotions and we all need to find ways to get by you know at the end of the day I think it's all about survival and what is going to help us get over to the next day and the next day and if and I think somewhere down the line when I was younger um, there wasn't the space to feel and so definitely the thing that I used to get by was um, just to intellectualize and I think all these strategies tie back to childhood I don't think that we I think we develop some of them as adults but I think these are the coping strategies we developed based on the types of parents we had how they coped with their emotions like you said your parents you know your mom um, definitely depicted the classic um, (laughs) symptom of intellectualization I think it's a very textbook example of like you experience a death and then all of a sudden you're you're planning the funeral, you know, and not giving yourself the time to grieve. Somewhere in her own life, and very often probably she just didn't have the space or even the the life strategy of knowing how to grieve and cope with her emotions in effective ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I see this in my siblings as well. So it does have a lot to do with upbringing, but I, I wouldn't say like anyone in my family is particularly openly emotional like even when I was telling my mom and sister about the tarot reading and I was explaining how you know we all know my dad is the type of person who endures a lot of hardship and pain and he's not the one to complain about it so even if he's not feeling okay he won't admit to it and and that's when my younger sister chimed in she's like oh that's like me too when I whenever I say I'm fine (laughs) like that's not good kid you know, that kind of reminds me of what my mom does where, and both my parents do this too, maybe it's Asian culture, but whenever something is wrong with their health, they just act like everything's okay. And I guess something that sparked in my head when you said that about your dad was he kind of had to be the one in charge and taking and holding the fort down. And maybe they feel like, maybe our parents feel, um, maybe men especially feel like if they show that vulnerability or admit it to themselves then it's real and then they'll lose control and not be able to hold the fort down in the ways that they feel like they need to for example if you know these men and our parents if they have children relying on them you know children who are not completely self-sufficient or if they you know being immigrants in this country already that's a struggle but they know it's 10 times harder for them. So if they let little things like their health come in the way or these, you know, little things, sometimes it really is a survival mechanism that it's just, I need to survive and I need to live to see tomorrow. So I need to push aside some of these things that could um, make me, you know, put me in a weaker state or in a more vulnerable state or a state where I might not be able to take care of my family and take care of myself. And maybe that's where that's kind of coming from subconsciously. This fear that like they can't be weak. You know, they're trying to survive here. I know you and I are trying to live. It's like Hassan Minaj said in his comedy, you know, our generation, we're trying to live, but our parents are still in that survival mode. How has 
intellectualization affected you negatively, you'd say? Or do you do you have pros for it? Yeah, let's let's go through pros and cons because we both intellectualize. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the pros is it's made me smarter. Mm-hmm. I think I can be quite brilliant you in are the brilliant. fields of psychology and just <laughs> no, and just processing. You know, the more I try to intellectualize and understand my human experience, the more I'm on Google, the more I'm reading books, the more I'm learning. I think at the end of the day, it's about improving and having the living the best life, and. Um, I think you and I both probably realize like, okay, we've experienced pain. We really are into this personal development journey and we want to improve. So intellectualization is positive because, you know, now you're finding labels for emotions, for reactions, for, you know, you're finding um, understanding in your human experience and you're able to comprehend it and put words to it. And until you understand and build awareness of something, you can't fix it. You can't change it. So I think in that way, it's a real pro. But I think the con is that I started realizing that it's harder for me to have deeply authentic, meaningful connections with people where I'm exposing vulnerability in myself because I always have this defense mechanism of intellectualization turned off, turned on. I actually um, had an encounter with a guy recently where um, we were just talking and he was telling me about, you know, his painful experiences with this girl who kind of um, left him. Um, they were like a thing for a year and then she left him. And my immediate solution was to immediately get into um, talking about, well, maybe, you know, she left you because of X, Y, and Z. She might have had this problem with her father. And, you know, well, you know, her dad died at this age. So it makes sense that she's kind of wishy-washy in relationships. And that was me intellectualizing when really all he probably needed from me in that moment as a friend was to just listen and to just feel the emotions and the pain behind what he's telling me. But instead, I'm here trying to figure out the whys behind why something yeah, happened. To provide answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, provide answers. And, you know, if, you're, if I'm your therapist and maybe you need answers from me or if you want advice from me, in that situation, it's a pro. The con is that I want to build meaningful relationships with people and doing this all the time doesn't help that because I have this wall up all the time on myself and like my therapist said I'm not showing my own emotions so if I don't show my own emotions and if I can talk about painful things and not show an emotion then people don't see how it affected me if the tears don't come to my eyes if I don't let myself feel vulnerable people don't know how deeply those things affected me and moved me and in turn because they can't see that layer of emotion in myself they can't feel close to me And that's the biggest con. Mm. And I want to change that because for the rest of my life, I want to have deeper, more meaningful relationships with people. What about you? Mm. Yeah, I think the detriment for me was, yes, I could sort of perhaps vocalize what I was feeling, but not necessarily feel it, right? (laughs) So I used to have breakdowns pretty much like every single month all throughout college, maybe even like a year or Mm. two post-grad because I felt like I was running myself way too thin, trying to do too much for too many people, trying to be so many different Mm -hmm. things, where I wasn't really listening to my intuition. And that was sort of just all boil over. And it's kind of like I would expect it every single month, which 
sounds a bit messed up. It's like, oh yeah, I feel like I'm on the brink of another meltdown. But it was also very cathartic because during those instances, I would just like ball my eyes out for like a day and then I'd be good to go again. But I feel like mm-hmm. that's not a very healthy or normal way of regulating your emotions. It's like I shouldn't have had to wait for it to boil over to this mm-hmm. extent in order to proceed, you know? I feel like it'd be much more manageable if I had just felt it when I was feeling it and then go about my day instead of just like pushing it and pushing it away, like stretching it so far until the band breaks and it slaps me back in the face. How do you think that affected your um, your life overall? It, put a, it sounds like it put a toll on your body because, you know, you're putting yourself through such, you know, intense stress, which if you just felt it in the moment, you could have let your body grieve in a healthy way. But do you think it affected your relationships with people and how you kind of interacted with people? Ooh, these are bringing me back to college nights where we would just be drinking like so many times a week and some tears would shed or some shit. Yes, I know. Um, and yeah, and then like I would always regret it the next morning. It's like, oh, I definitely overshared. And that was because I wasn't being super authentic and vulnerable from the very beginning. You know, I felt like I had a ton of things to hide. And so when I was not sober, I would all this shit would spew out. And then I would regret it the next day because I felt like, ooh, I kind of just, I've lost myself there. Or I, I've lost that image of myself there. Mm. Um, but I, I would say that intellectualization can be helpful at times. Mm. For instance, as I was going through my most recent breakup, I knew all the steps I had to do, right? I knew that, yes, this hurts a lot, but I can get through this as long as I so I dedicated like entire week of just watching rom-coms you know I bought a ton of tissues I I journal throughout the entire week it's like I had a process for it to like grieve my relationship and it worked um I don't know if that sounds like insane or like super Virgo or whatever (laughs) um but like yeah it worked so that's why I feel like it's not bad to to intellectualize but it is bad to suppress your emotions. Yeah. It did catch my eye. I mean, it ca- caught my ear, I guess, when you said that you had a process for it. Like, you <laughs> try to... some. There is a little bit of control there that you're creating a framework for how you're going to grieve. What if you wanted to grieve by just grieving? Like, letting the tears come whenever. They might come when you're in the middle of this episode thinking about something. You didn't plan for that, though. It's crazy that um, as we get older, it's like we have to build in time for even that grieving. (laughs) I read somewhere that that's actually healthy to stop um, rumination over someone to, you know, say, okay, at six o'clock for 10 minutes, I'm going to cry over this person. I'm going to cry over my ex. But after that, it's done. So, yeah, I do see the pro in that. But the con in that, I guess, will be that you know, you might still, you might still need more than a week. You might need more than rom-coms and a box of tissues and it might come up whenever and um, it might spring up on you and, you know, are you okay with that? The reason it did work though was because I was giving myself space to grieve. Like I did give room for my emotions to completely flourish and let it be. I wasn't suppressing anything. I think that's when it becomes an issue when you begin to repress your emotions by using these defense mechanisms. That's true. You you said something that really caught my eye before when you said that it was like your identity. Like when you mentioned college days and how like, you know, after a wine night or something, the tears would flow and then you would question like, oh my God, like 
like what is like did I say too much yeah. did I overshare did Every I overspill and like how is this how is this changing my identity and I think this kind of I feel like you kind of hit the nail on the head the core of what um defense defense mechanisms and intellectualization and everything we've been talking about even with a fear it's kind of like if we didn't have these ways of processing which may or may not be good because we've been talking about pros and cons would it kind of affect the way that i built up my identity for example with my identity and you know this everyone kind of saw me as a person who has it together when i walk in the way that i present myself whether it's like hair or makeup like does trisha ever not have it together meanwhile i realized like i was presenting myself that way and no one actually knew behind the scenes like how i'm feeling or what I might actually be going through because visually I had it together. So these defense mechanisms, like it kind of is protecting your identity. And like, you're worried, like, like you said, you're worried that if you overspilled or overshared, or if you had an emotional display, did you say something that shattered or tampered with that identity that you built up for yourself? But I question that because I wonder, is this like a healthy form of identity building and self-building and flourishing of your ego or not yeah do you feel like that is a part of your identity or an armor i see it as an armor and i think that's why so many people are unwilling and unable to let go of their defense mechanisms because it would mean breaking down the entire being of their identity and sometimes that's way too cumbersome to do when you're working nine to five when you're running around with kids when you have so much stuff going on it's easier to just compartmentalize and deny and disassociate and subliminate and compensate and intellectualize and all of the different defense mechanisms there are sometimes it's easier to do that because you and I are lucky in a way that we've right now taken time in our lives to really dive deep and work on ourselves. And we, you know, in your 20s, I feel like it's the best time. It's probably the most free you'll be in your life. And not everyone had the time to do that. So you and I might be okay breaking down our identity and saying, okay, I'm okay being a clean slate today. I'm okay with starting over. But I don't know that everyone chooses to do that. And I think sometimes... People build their entire lives and their careers and their financial situations off of their egos and off of unhealthy defense mechanisms. And that's just the reality. And people don't want to break down their identity and it can be an armor. That's what I feel. Defense mechanisms also isn't anything you can control. It's just how you naturally react. I don't think a lot of people understand how they use their defense mechanisms. For example, projection is a huge thing. Um, I think I've talked about the story before about how I had an ex Mm -hmm. who was very controlling and concerned about whether I was cheating. And it was only because he was the one who was cheating. So that's just a Mm -hmm. form of projection. Yeah, I've had that ex too. Typically the things that people want to call out and other people and be critical about and other people, it's like you point one finger forward, you're pointing three fingers back. Mm -hmm. It's coming from somewhere Mm -hmm. within yourself. So you can deny those feelings of shame or guilt or whatever it is that your mind can't process. I did also, you know, learn that defense mechanisms can come in the form of addiction as well Mm. whether it's you know smoking or alcohol consumption and in that way I kind of tied it back to the identity piece because I thought you know let's say you're I'm going to use a generic example of being an investment banker and all the bankers that you go out with 
after a late night of work, you're going out, you're drinking, and all of a sudden, like, the amount you drink becomes a part of your identity. Like, oh, this person's a tank. Oh, this person can consume a lot of, you know, alcohol, you know, all of that stuff. This person can take, like, 10 shots. And sometimes, um, you know, that drinking is happening because you're sad about something. You're upset. You know, you feel out of control in your life. But all of a sudden, this form of defense mechanism has become a part of your identity where if you shed that, then you might have to lose an integral part of yourself, a, i.e. your friendships, maybe your career, your, you know, whatever job you're in. Um, it would be really dismantling your life. And that's why a lot of people don't want to stir the pot. So yeah, defense mechanisms, I think it is something we can't control. And it comes from a place of us, a place within us that we can't control. But I, I do think that some people have awareness of what they're doing, but they still don't want to change it because it would mean a loss of identity. Question for you. So do you have any intention of minimizing the amount of intellectualization you do? Yes. Yes. Because now as I've taken the time, as I've been called out so many times for what I've done, I think this most recent experience talking to this guy who told me like, he just needed to be heard and he just needed to see the feeling behind what he was saying, not for the processing to happen. I realized that I can't keep doing this. Um, it, I need to find ways to recognize the situations in which this might be helpful and the situations in which this might actually be holding me back from reaching a level of depth that I'm actually trying to reach with people. I'm ready to live a better life. I care so much about these different topics because I want to improve myself. I really want to dig deep and dissect. And, you know, in turn, you know, we're talking about this with each other. We're helping other people by diving deep within ourselves. And I want to be of service to the world as well. And I think the best way that I can be in service of the world is by um, taking care of it in myself first so that I know what I'm talking about and I can actually share from a place of having tried it and experienced it for myself so I do have an intention of balancing it and figuring out where this is useful and where this is not um, and also figuring out what different like intellectualization is one I know that that's not the only um, defensive mechanism that I have sometimes I can be passive aggressive or I have like different other defense mechanisms and there are ones that I want to keep in the right situations and ones that I want to just heal and overcome what about you? When you were talking about the situation with the guy, it sparked something in me because it made me think about like how it's good to learn about these defense mechanisms to understand how other people operate. <laughs> okay, this sounds like more intellectualization, but I'm thinking, right? So sometimes when I tell people personal things and I don't get a response that I was sort of like hoping for, for, for instance, like typically when... I complain about things, right? I'm not expecting resolution or any answers. I kind of just want people to listen. And sometimes I feel like, oh, this person, you know, is not very empathetic towards me. But in reality, this is just how they would respond to issues. Like maybe this person's also intellectualizing. And it's not like they don't hold space for you. It's just mm -hmm. this is what they would do in your situation. Yeah, I think a lot of the way people empathize with us, listen to us, and even speak to us is coming from how they speak to themselves, how they empathize with themselves, and how they deal with those situations themselves. I, you know, when I 
when I go to tell my mom anything, it's like a complete wall barrier. Like it just bounces off. You can't, she won't feel the emotion behind what you're saying. And I think it's just because that's how she processes things for herself. So you're right. I do think it's, that's their way of dealing with it. And maybe um, they themselves haven't reached a level of, maybe a level of sadness or a level of grieving um, within themselves or in their own lives. So like, how could they actually do that for you? if they don't do that for themselves. So learning about this is helping us, I guess, serve others better. And when we do that work in themselves, it's kind of like we can maybe react to others in healthier ways that show them, oh, this is how I actually wanted to be listened to. This is actually how I wanted to be heard and connected with when I was expressing myself. What's that quote? It's like some cliche like hurt people hurt people but healed people heal people oh i've never actually heard that one before i like that it is very true you can only really help people once you help yourself first yeah i think you and i have been on this um really cool journey of trying to sometimes i think that you really need to be forced into wanting to change i i think that a lot of people they experience really great childhoods they go into our adulthood and they're faced with like really tumultuous situations and then it hits them maybe in their 40s or 50s that okay i want to go into therapy i want to read about different things and and help myself and heal myself i think in a way you know you and i we've had difficulties growing up in our own ways and i think it kind of pushed us at a younger age to want to dissect and maybe right now we're like enough is enough now i need to go into the different areas of my life and figure things out so i can improve myself and Mm -hmm. um i think that's a really great thing and i'm proud of us (laughs) i'm proud of us too so what would you say you fear and how do you respond to that fear i am a very fearful person (laughs) i think i I'm trying to work on it. I think I fear everything. Um, My fear stems from feeling a lack of support. Throughout my life, I think I've just needed to always take care of myself. I don't think my parents were in any position. They could barely take care of themselves, so I'm taking care of myself all the time. So I think I have fears in different areas of my life. Um, one is risk taking. I could be a very risk averse person. Someone might want to go do something very spontaneous and I will be fearing doing that because I'm like, can I actually afford the cost of what it might cost to mess up in this situation? I think I fear risk taking in my career. I think I fear risk taking in love. I think I fear risk taking in, you know, um, financials, like financial situations. And even when it comes to like investing money and things like that, I have fear in anything that in the future could fail. So if I perceive any sort of failure, then I fear and then I intellectualize that fear. Is your response avoidance then? Definitely. It's like, it's very, it's disorganized. It's avoidant, but it's also anxious about the outcome. Mm. Are are you an anxious avoidant? I'm both. I used to think I was just anxiously attached, but I think I'm like anxious, anxious avoidant and sometimes disorganized. I have to retake all of that again. <laughs> Maybe I've changed. I do. I I feel like we have every possible response inbuilt in us. I think that we're born perfect. Oh. I think that different people in different situations evoke different 
reactions from us. So I've met people where I've been in relationships where I was super anxiously attached. And then I've been in situations where I was super um, avoidant attached. I've been in situations where my defense mechanisms were super triggered and I was very fearful in that relationship. And then ones where um, I think I felt a little bit safer. So I think I'm perfectly capable of feeling like the range of emotions. Like I think that these things get triggered in us, like our fears get more triggered in us also when we're um, in situations that resemble or put us back into that, that like fight or flight response that we had as kids or like that protective mechanism that we needed to have as kids because something might resemble our home environment or an emotion that we felt at home. And so now all of a sudden like that fear is triggered. How do you feel about like fear in your own life and like how it comes about? Um, yeah, like I mentioned, sometimes it's very intrusive. Like I'd be fine. And then just the thought of the worst thing possible. Oh my goodness. What if my parents die tomorrow appears in my head or that that's like primarily like my biggest fear I'd say, mm-hmm. or I, I'm also really afraid of like how others perceive me and that's something like I've dealt with for the longest time because like I have struggled with social social anxiety um like it's just so weird to me to think that there's not a single person out there who actually knows you besides yourself like every single person has an idea of you or like they they know a certain part of you you know perhaps like a few years ago like that version of you and that's sort of sickening to me I don't know how to explain it yeah hmm maybe you don't like certain parts of yourself from before (laughs) yeah perhaps it stems from like me disliking myself in the past and now you know i've grown to befriend myself and love myself so things have improved but yeah how how i deal with it is just at least with when it comes to my parents like once again just like intellectualizing it like knowing that i'll be okay um so that is sort of reassuring but to be honest like when that event inevitably happens I don't know what I do with myself you know yeah sometimes it's like in life we can never prepare no matter how many defense mechanisms we have no matter how much we try to keep ourselves protected um, I believe you know there's a spiritual lesson in everything and that lesson is just delayed until you choose to finally face it so you can keep you know, delaying it with um, the ego and by all these different, like, mechanisms, but eventually, like, it will have to be faced. And sometimes there's calmness and serenity in that. So do you subscribe to the idea of everything happens for a reason? I think everything happens for a lesson. Mm. I've always kind of been of that notion. I've always tried to extract more than, like, a meaning or reason. Um, I don't kind of go into like the little nitty gritty things of my day like oh this leaf fell from the tree and now it's on my lap and it must mean something because I think then I would be in my thoughts all day long but I think a lot of the big things that happen in my life I definitely extract lesson and meaning and reason out of it. Do you think everything has to have a meaning or do you apply some meaning to it to make yourself feel better and for you to gain some sense of control? I apply the meaning to it. I apply the meaning to it because for me, what keeps me going every day is improving myself every day. So if I can attribute some positive meaning or some, at the end of the day, we don't know if anything is real. You know, whether it's like religion, spirituality, whatever it is you believe in, it could be a deity, God, source, it doesn't matter. Like, 
it's a human attributed idea everything is like man created like we could be arguing right now about you know the color of my shirt not being pink you might (laughs) think it's orange i might say it's black and i'm convinced this is black because that's the meaning i attributed to it but um you know, it's the beliefs that we hold. And, and and again, I really think it is about survival. I think in our core, in our DNA, we live to see tomorrow and whatever it's going to take, whether it's like every instance in life, like attributing meaning to it, you know, finding a lesson in a really terrible situation. You know, maybe you were diagnosed with cancer three times and you fought it off and you chose you choose to look at it as like, you know, I'm a fighter and, and, and whatever meaning you want to put into it rather than saying, oh, well, life sucks and I'm just going to mope and, and you know, die of a heartbreak. I think, I think humans are um, generally optimistic. That's why we wake up every day. You know, not everyone, but I think we wake up the next day. Otherwise, we wouldn't wake up the next day and go through our day if we weren't. <laughs> and I think just these, whether it's a defense mechanism or attributing meaning to something, it's it's all formulated in my own mind, and it's my way of continuing on and it's my own way of building up my identity and feeling better about myself and evolving and growing every day Um, because we don't want we're all trying to stave off negative emotions we're all trying to get away from the hard feelings and um i think even attributing meaning to things is in a way moving away from the hard feelings of what happened and that life can just suck and that if we didn't attribute a lesson into something or if we didn't, you know, find meaning in things, then we would just be left with that mundane, like, life sucks. And it, and it would just, then why should we carry on? I feel like if life innately had no meaning, I would be miserable. But I think that's why I I like things like angel numbers, synchronicities, because it is a way for me to feel more connected and as though I have purpose. And and like you, I deeply resonate with what you were saying because I, I try to find and create meaning every single day of my life. And that's just what keeps me going. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we don't need to prescribe to the idea of we all have just one singular purpose here. I feel mm-hmm. like that can change all the time if you want it to. Your purpose could be different every single day. But as long as that's what keeps you going, I think that's something to latch on to personally. Yeah, I think... Everything that we're doing, like for ourselves, everything we've been talking about, all these topics, it really is about, you know, tackling it from different angles to get back closer with yourself. You know, there is no one single purpose or meaning for any person. I just want to be more of me. I just want to feel like more of me. And I want to carry on day by day happier and feeling more positive about myself and feeling more like Trisha. Whatever that is, whether I'm creating meaning for who I am, if there's something I don't like, like you mentioned with your identity, like, um, you know, it kind of makes you cringe maybe that like there are people in your life that knew you like 10 years ago and maybe still think of you in that way. Because now you finally created identity and meaning in your life that you like, that you enjoy. You like looking in the mirror and you like, you know, saying Kim is, you know, X, Y, and Z. This is how I love myself. (laughs) Yeah. And it... And it feels good. And it and it, that meaning that we place on ourselves and our lives and like breaking down the things we don't like, dissecting them, healing them, transmuting them, whatever it is. And then um, adding new things on like, oh, I like the concept of angel numbers. It's 2.22 right now. Oh, it's snap. It's 2.22 p.m. on the clock. <laughs> yeah. So right now it's 2.22 p.m. And I will go. Normally I'll go and I'll I'll search up, um, you know, what does 2.22 <laughs> mean? 
uh, <laughs> and all this stuff. And, and, and these things, like, we're so happy right now. Like, there's joy on our face. Like, this is what keeps us going. Like, this meaning um, that we're putting to these little yeah, synchronicities. And, and it is 222. <laughs> I love it. Like, what's the likelihood? <laughs> it is yeah. actually 222, people. I promise, in the afternoon. <laughs> but um, it all flows into getting back more into yourself. Um, that's definitely a tangent, um, but I think it's a little extension of what we've been talking about. I love that. I love that. How did we get to this in the first place? Like how, um, you know, like the why? I do think it started off a bit somber with my story, but we we are leaving it off on a very positive note. Yeah. How did we get here? Why do we care about intellectualization and why do we care about... Yeah. Why do we need to know why? We're just here, Trisha. We have reached the end yes oh wait i don't like that we didn't reach the end <laughs> i take that back i take that back i'm saying we are here right now we don't need to know how we got here yeah and that's oh my gosh you know what i just did i just intellectualized <laughs> i intellectualized our experience of this episode of trying to understand why rather than just taking it for what it was uh, yeah the why of why, why we got here how we got here that's irrelevant there are some whys you don't need to dig even deeper for, I feel. Yeah. Some things just are, so let them be. You don't feel like in a way we were trained to think this way, though? Like, even when we were in English class, like, you know, your essay is meaningless without that thesis statement. Like, what is your catchphrase? Like, what is the, why are you writing this essay? <laughs> like, tell me, you know, what differentiates your essay? I feel like in some ways we've been programmed to think this way. So yeah, just need to figure out when it's necessary and when it's not. But yes, we've reached the end. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me in this episode, Trisha. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. I love all our conversations and the way that we relate different topics back to our life. So thanks for having me on another episode. Yes, yes, more to come. Woo! Okay, we're good. <laughs>